Patients, doctors, job creators, and Americans from all walks of life are being harmed and losing access to affordable coverage and the care that they need. That's why we welcome the Senate's proposal to provide Americans with much-needed relief from Obamacare. The Senate's proposal is built on I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was HHS Secretary Tom Price applauding the Senate bill released Thursday to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. It's not clear yet whether Republicans will have the votes for the bill, but the party and Democrats are falling into their usual camps of either blasting the ACA or vowing to take it down. There was one person today I was especially interested in hearing from, Neera Tandon, the head of the Liberal Center for American Progress and someone who is heavily favored to be HHS secretary if Hillary Clinton had won. I caught Neera Thursday morning before the health bill was posted and, and the day blew up. We spend the first half of this podcast conversation talking about Republicans' health care efforts, and the second half talking about Neera herself, what it's like running CAP, lessons from the campaign, and lessons for Democrats moving forward. You can check the time cues to jump around, and we'll get to that conversation in a moment. But first, as healthcare news continues to break, stay up to date. Subscribe to Politico Pulse, politico.com slash politicopulse, the morning newsletter that I write, 6 a.m. for pros, 10 a.m. for everyone else. And follow my colleagues, especially Jen Haberkorn, Rachna Pradhan, Adam Kankran, Brianna Ailey. They are embedded on the Hill, bringing the latest news to Politico readers. And with that, here's Neera Tandon on healthcare. We're talking a little after 10 a.m. on Thursday. The contours of the Senate bill have leaked, even though the official bill won't be out in time. Of course, listeners will have seen it by the time they're listening to this podcast. Based on what we know about the bill, Nira, and, and you thinking about it as a progressive leader, is this a disaster or is it more tolerable than you expected from Republicans? Uh, what I'm surprised by is that the Senate would actually make substantial parts of their repeal worse than the House. So uh, obviously we haven't seen the details, but in the broad strokes, uh, the they are essentially cutting Medicaid uh, more deeply than the House. And uh, they're oddly enough keeping the they're keeping a little bit more of the framework around the exchanges. Than the than the House did, and so, but you know, the Medicaid program is one that addresses the needs of the most vulnerable. So the irony is that in some really, and uh, in, in you know, the most obvious way, the Senate bill is more cruel um, uh, than the House bill, which you know I think is in some ways surprising. Uh, but you know, again, one is authored by Mitch McConnell. <laughs> It's surprising because we were told for weeks that the Senate bill was going to be nicer. Trump said it needed to have more heart. And yet. Oh, yes. In fact, Trump said the House bill was meaner, was mean. You mean, know, mean, mean. He mean, said mean, it. mean. Just a mean bill. And so you'd think that the Senate would become less mean. Uh, but instead, they've uh, they're they're the direction they've chosen to go in is to in order to preserve their tax cuts uh, do deeper cuts into Medicaid and I think a thing that people don't really understand is this isn't just affecting the Medicaid expansion this bill has now essentially a direct assault on the 
Medicaid program that existed before the ACA ever, uh, ever, ever passed. And they're transforming it um, in a direction in which it makes it, I mean, we can go into per capita caps and all this stuff, but essentially cuts uh, cuts the program and, and how much it can help people and what it can do under the guise of flexibility. Um, I should say that you're making quote fingers. I know. Around, I'm around sorry. You can't see the visuals of my face or my quote fingers, but uh, <laughs> I'll do my best to narrate your, <laughs> but, your uh, unhappy expression when talking about this bill. I mean, that is what is really kind of uh, amazing about this process, which is it's been a the ACA, the ACA repeal is a, a bait and switch in multiple directions. First of all, it's uh, they are essentially doing a massive tax cut for the wealthy in order to. As part of this health care bill, but also it's, you know, this what they're trying to do to the Medicaid program is not something they've been trying to do, you know, something they've been trying to do for a few years. This has been a, like a 30 year assault. Uh, the contract with America was uh, this was part New, of the New contract Gingrich with America and, yeah. that the Republicans in the House couldn't get done in the mid 1990s. And they're using this bill as a vehicle to accomplish it. So, you know, what's weird about the debate we're having is not that uh, we're setting back the Obama year policies. These are policies that were to the far right of George W. Bush that Trump is is championing and trying to get past. Well, it's it's notable for a few reasons. One, as has been remarked, Trump campaigned on a promise not to cut the entitlement programs, including Medicaid. Including Medicaid. <laughs> and that, that seems to be forgotten. Secondly, Medicaid is thought of very differently by the parties. I saw a poll, I think it was Kaiser Family Foundation, more than half of Republican voters think that Medicaid is welfare. Many fewer Democrats, I think 25% of Democratic voters feel the same way about the program. So for Republicans, this is a chance to roll back what they see as a welfare program. And I know you disagree with that perspective. Yeah, no, no. But I mean, I think it's I mean, I obviously disagree substantively. But what the the incredible irony of this is how much the Medicaid program helps rural America. Um, You know, the hospitals that are going to close from these cuts are rural hospitals. The people who are going to lose coverage are anyone on the Medicaid program. But, you know, 25 percent of farmers receive Medicaid. So, you know, people I know that there's an image of Medicaid as a program for just poor people in cities, but the Medicaid program in states throughout this country is providing health care to people in rural communities and exurban community I mean uh, in suburban communities and really Medicaid funds the health care infrastructure of the of of rural communities and that's one of the reasons why these dramatic Medicaid cuts are actually going to have a deep uh, effect on how we address the opioid crisis. And, you know, Medicaid is a actually— A paper that Center for American <laughs> Progress just put out, and I think I plugged in Pulse uh, on Thursday. Yes, it's a program that— What uh, synergy? <laughs> I mean, that's what I find so surprising about what Trump and the Republicans are doing. It's not—you know, I mean, I obviously think it's disgusting to use social policy or public policy to— attack people of, you know, the opposing party. That is not what public policy should be about. It's actually not what politics should be about. But what's amazing about the healthcare debate we're having is how much uh, the Republicans have used public policy to punish their own voters. I mean, as you know, Republicans passed a bill in the House. Every, you know, almost every Republican voted for a bill in the House that would 
you know, for a 50-year-old man living in a rural community who makes $25,000 a year, it was an eight-fold increase in their premiums. If you're in a, if you're a 27-year-old who makes $75,000 and lives in a city, you had a premium increase. Not that much, though, right? It was like the least damage. Um, so, it's you know, I think it's almost like they think they can do anything to those voters and they'll still keep them. Well, it will be interesting to watch just as Democrats took all this pain for unrelated health care problems that didn't have to do with the Affordable Care Act. There yeah. are always frustrations in health care and they just accumulated onto the Democrats because they were perceived as the ones who had changed the health care system. Republicans are setting themselves up for similar punishment from voters who may not be affected directly by this. But we'll find, if if the bill passes, but we'll find frustrations in the health care system that now accrue to the party in power. I want to go back to your read on the overall bill. Mm -hmm. Some conservatives that I've talked to this week are frustrated. They think it doesn't go far enough, that it keeps too much of the infrastructure around Mm -hmm. the exchanges, which you pointed out. But also vis-a-vis Medicaid, they want to see the Medicaid expansion rolled back very quickly. And instead, the Senate bill is proposing a phase out over a number of years that sets Medicaid up to be an election referendum. So isn't it possible that the Senate could have gone farther and that this is the unhappy compromise that that they've reached, which maybe isn't as stark as it could have been, but also isn't really winning over the folks in their party who are on the fringes that they need to bring on board? Yeah, I think that, you know, look, healthcare policy is not easy, as we learned from taking uh, over a year to pass the Affordable Care Act. Some might say healthcare is complicated. <laughs> it's, it's very, it's, it's deeply complicated, hugely complicated. Um, I, I guess what I would say to that is um, look, the real problem for Republicans is that they have to litigate out deep. Uh, deep differences on health care policy in this process because they did not litigate them out in the presidential campaign. So Obama was actually able to pass his health care bill because he'd actually campaigned on the same framework. And so he uh, in 2000, you know, so I worked for President Obama in the in the general election and we had a rich debate about it, even in the primary. But his basic framework was one that he talked about, you know, fair amount Uh we actually had a few questions in the debates in 2008 around them. He did advertising around it. And so, uh, you know, I think the big problem for Republicans is that they've done repeal and replace for seven years, but never actually said what the replacement is. Trump never said what the replacement is. And now they have to litigate these issues out, which is everyone can say, I want a real repeal and replace. But for for senators who are in the replace in the expansion states like Shelley Moore Capito or in West Virginia, in West Virginia or Portman in Ohio, in Ohio um, or now like Cassidy in a deep red state like Louisiana. John Bell Edwards, the governor, campaigned on a Medicaid expansion, became governor and has actually done a Medicaid expansion. So in those states, they have real challenge, which is the Medicaid program, the Medicaid expansion is serving people, providing health care to hundreds of thousands of people in their state. And, you know, the big issue they're debating really is just when to get rid of the program. It's not like they're like preserve it, 
it's like I'm going to get rid of the program in seven years after my next election or two years. So the eventual outcome is going to be the same for the Medicaid program. And, you know, that's why I think that it's up to, you know, uh, leaders like Governor Kasich to say, you know, uh, Republican leaders, Republican leaders. And you've seen leadership from Governor Kasich. But, you know, I think they totally understand that if I'm going to, you know, essentially steal your car in five years versus seven years versus now, it's still a loss. So, uh, you know, they can't. I think that they're really just trying to litigate these issues. out, And of course, the far right wants to destroy as much as they can. Of not just again, let me just say, we're not talking about just the ACA expansion. They're now transforming the entire Medicaid program. And I don't understand how senators like Murkowski or Collins or even Shelley Moore Capito can look at their constituents in the face and, and vote this well, for they're, a bill. Well, they're playing a very interesting game right now of mocking the bill in the open, which may not actually mean anything when it comes to voting on the bill in the next couple of days or weeks. This bill is polling very poorly. Depending mm-hmm. on where you look, it can be as low as 20 percent, might be as high as 35 percent. If it's so unpopular... Why haven't Democrats been able to hang it around Republicans in special elections? You know, I think this is a, a kind of a, um, a a challenge, first of all, in every one of these special elections to just tell you how unpopular it is. In every one of these special elections, the Republicans are essentially saying that they haven't taken a position on the bill. And I should clarify, congressional special elections, yes. we just saw one in Georgia, yeah. another one in South Carolina. Democrats have lost these special elections despite some hopes that they could flip yes. these districts. And, you know, I'd say like across these five special elections, Democratic participation has been at 68 percent. Republicans have been at 56 percent. So there is a there does seem to be an enthusiasm uh, gap between the parties and voting. But I think one of the challenges they've had is that Republicans, you know, which I think is obviously ludicrous, but each of these Republican candidates, Karen Handel, never said how she'd vote on the bill. The House passed a bill. She wouldn't uh, she wouldn't say that she would have voted for it or not voted for it. She danced on that for a really long time. The Montana candidate, when asked directly about the CBO score, Body slammed the reporter. That's how much he didn't want to talk about the health care bill. I know usually put us all on notice as health reporters. I got to tell you, like a question about the CBO score, and I've had a fair amount of these in my life. Never occurred to me the answer was to like basically grab someone by the neck and throw them to the ground. But I'm a kind of petite person, so maybe it wouldn't have worked for me. I have to remember this next time I have a hard questions for you. I've I've been intimidated in the past, but clearly that shouldn't be. Yeah, I'm not not likely to physically assault you for a CBO question. But but I think that does actually demonstrate that we have a... um, that Republicans saw how unpopular this is. And I, I think the issue here is that they should really take note that in order to win Republican-leaning districts that, you know, have Republican lean of up to 20 points. So Tom Price won his district by 63 to 37 in November. He didn't have a well-funded opponent, but 63 to 27. Tom Price, the open oh, Georgia seat. 37. That, yeah. And who this was the Georgia seat. And he um, he won that district by over uh, over 20 points. For Karen Handel to hold on, and she, you know, won by four points. Um, 
But for her to do that, she had to basically outspend John Ossoff uh, with outside money, I mean, with super PAC money, but more importantly, had to dance on a whole series of issues, the budget, everything else, whereas Republicans who vote for this bill will not be able to dance. You know, they are going to have a vote. That vote is going to be clear what this bill does to you. And as we learned in the health care debate in 2009 and 2010, Healthcare is like any other issue. Every American feels like an expert on the healthcare system because you have a very deeply personal experience with it. So, as you know, the Affordable Care Act didn't actually affect, you know, fundamentally employer-based coverage. It was really about building on the system that we had and um but yet, you know, people were easily scared about what could happen to them. Here, there's a bill that will literally cut <laughs> 23 million people, or we'll see what the CBO score for this is, but since it affects the Medicaid program, still will likely have bad 10-year number. Cuts 23 million, but like addresses lifetime limits for employer-based coverage, a whole series of things that are going to affect people who are in the exchanges, outside of the exchanges. And I think that's... Um, you know, I, I really think that that is a that's the lightning rod for people. They can understand what it means to go to a doctor and be scared about your insurance covering whatever your doctor just diagnosed. Well, understanding that, would you like to see Democrats run more aggressively on health care right now? Could John Ossoff, who was in a district where the bull, uh, where the bill was polling very poorly, I think 62 percent of people opposed the bill, 80 percent of voters in that district felt very strongly about health care. He didn't take that many direct attacks on it in his closing message. Would you have liked to have seen more of that from him and other Democrats as they emerge over the next year? I think Democrats. Uh, I think Democrats should very much campaign on 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 defending and you know fixing and defending the ACA versus uh, versus destroying it. And I think people should get. Candidates should understand what's in these these bills. I hope that they should link themselves specifically to Obamacare. I think they should. I think they should absolutely. I mean, if you look at the polling numbers now, it's like sixty percent, or like let's basically keep the ACA, have some fixes versus. It's definitely been more than fifty percent, which is a big reversal from where. Yes. The ACA so on election day was a thirty-eight percent approval rating, and it's obviously moved up. So my view is that candidates should get well versed on what these, what the uh, particularly House candidates, they should get super well versed on what the uh, AHCA bill did that passed. And really ask very pointed questions. You know, what I've been most uh, excited about is the just level of specificity that people have been, like, piling into these town halls. They're asking really well-educated questions about pre-existing conditions, individual mandate, what it'll do. Like, they have very good, you know, people want to know more information about this. And I think candidates should definitely run on it. You know, I'm not going to second-guess John Ossoff. or any of the candidates, Quist, others that ran. I, but my view is that this is a great, you know, a tragic real – tragically, because we should not even be discussing this bill, but a real opportunity for Democrats to campaign on. Hey, it's Dan Diamond, and we'll get back to the conversation with Nira in a moment. But I wanted to tell you about two things to put on your radar. First, I appeared on Politico's Nerdcast this week. It's our weekly podcast about politics and policy in a very data-driven way. It was a lot of fun, and you can find the Nerdcast podcast on all of your favorite podcast apps. It posts on Friday. And then next week, June 27th, 
I'm going to be a moderator at Politico's Outside In event. It's downtown D.C. at the Mayflower Hotel. We'll be looking at population health and how it's changing and evolving, especially as Republicans push their reforms forward. Joanne Kennan and Arthur Allen will be joining me from Politico. We've got Susan DeVore, Karen DeSalvo, Nick Dawson, and others to speak on the issue of population health in the industry. You can find out more at politico.com slash events. Click on upcoming events to sign up and for details. And with that, let's get back to Neera Tandon. I will get back to healthcare, but wanted to talk a little bit about you and your background. Mm -hmm. And it's an open secret that if Hillary Clinton had won, she would have tapped you as a chick secretary. Oh, no, no, no. We don't know that. This is just speculation. I mean, I was on the transition. I don't. I did not have that sense. But it's, it's great when someone just reports it so that it's just like known as fact. I, <laughs> <laughs> I will say enough reports have come out that, and from folks I know inside the administration, the last administration as well as the reporting since, you were certainly on the short list to be HHS secretary, whether mm-hmm. or not you want I mean, to have you seen that building? Do, would you really like to work in that building? No offense to everyone who works there. I but it's the, like, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, I mean, people probably can't visualize the ugly, ugliest building in America, but it is definitely up there. <laughs> it, it was on the short list, I think, of IJR's five ugliest buildings in D.C. And the first podcast we ever did for, for Pulse Check, Andy Slavitt, the head of CMS, I asked him at the end, is this the ugliest building that you've ever worked in or something? And he you know, rush to condemn it. So yes, the Humphrey building, <laughs> not not a destination for aesthetics. You can definitely, you can all Google it. It's not, a, it's a really, it's a masterpiece of uh, intense uh, ugliness. Also a masterpiece, your ability to deftly avoid the direct question I was going to ask you about running HHS. <laughs> but we're five months after, after inauguration, we're talking about what Tom Price is doing. What would you have done if you were running HHS at this point in a Clinton administration? Uh, I mean, again, the hypotheticals are, are kind of crazy. But, you know, this is what's really tragic about the election. We would be, I mean, I would imagine, and it's not really me, but I would say I'd imagine that uh, Hillary would have been very focused on how to both uh, ensure that the ACA was functioning really well and think through ways to expand coverage. I mean, uh, she had a, a career in which she was really passionate, and, and you saw it really whether she was first lady um, or senator or presidential candidate, very focused on expanding health care for people and had had done a lot of work, particularly on children's health insurance. And so, you know, I, I, in, in that world, we'd be discussing, you know, ways to ensure that we were expanding health care coverage, not um, figuring out ways to stop Republicans from uh, basically eliminating health care for 23 million people. So state public options, for instance, which had been on the I table. I mean, specific ideas were particular fixes, but state public options. So in states where insurers had left, you'd be able to create a, a public option um, so that there would be an insurer of last resort everywhere, uh, which is, you know, actually, as as I think people forget, like Los Angeles, parts of California have all, uh, actually had Medicaid programs that are public. Um, so, you know, there's models for it. Uh, so anyway, that's what we would have been doing. But Shoulda, woulda, coulda. Here we are in the abyss. <laughs> I can only imagine what this past year has been like for you, mm-hmm. your senior advisor to a campaign that suffered a surprising defeat. Mm-hmm. You've had vultures 
like me, reading your emails that, that leaked on It's on so rude. You really shouldn't read people's emails. I mean, you really should spend your time. I mean, I don't think you should read someone else's emails if you're not wanting to make your emails public. Don't you think that's like a basically good theory of, of how to behave? Well, it's it's been a source of a lot of newsroom debate. And I will, I will say on the podcast, I would say to anybody who asked, it was not my favorite thing to do and often felt kind of slimy reading through people's personal emails. Oh, would it seem slimy and voyeuristic to actually read through people's personal emails to like their friends about things? Because that, you know, that is what it is. Well, (laughs) and and you have a fair opinion. I I would just say as someone who gets emails forward to him all the time, including in today's Pulse newsletter, there was an email sent by someone within a major healthcare organization in America. If Tom Price and Ryan's Priebus were sending emails back and forth about the future of health reform under President Trump, that is the kind of thing that I would be expected to report. It just gets weird and and off track. The the analogy here, just to say about my own case, is that I was not on the campaign. So it would really be like Reince Priebus and his friend outside going uh, back and forth about what should happen on a campaign. But, you know, look, I I it was that was not a super fun experience. Um, I, I do hope karma is real and that everyone else's emails will be exposed. But, you know, you're a perfectly nice person, so maybe it won't happen to you. But there are plenty of other people who somehow the Russians managed not to dump their emails. But, you know, uh, maybe we'll live in a world in which the radical transparency will happen to other people. Um, uh, but Can- really, I mean, at the end of the day, like, I think what um, was surprising about that experience uh, was how uh, no one actually really spent time thinking that much here about why it happened and who was doing it. Um, whereas, you know, I'm actually surprised how much better uh, th- the French media, the French government, etc., were at dealing with the Russian hacking into the French elections. The, the Macron leak that happened mm-hmm. right before the election. My, my next question, it's not a policy question. It's just a personal one, mm-hmm. a human one. You had a pretty rough experience. Are you okay? <laughs> I think so. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I guess what I would say is um, after the election, uh, I realized that uh, there are not, you know, the, there are not a lot of institutions that have the ability to analyze what will happen to those 23 million people district by district or, um, you know, provide information on what's happening in the budget. And and really for me, I think I uh, have been able to focus on the work at hand. Uh, I mean, it's almost uh, maybe it's fate that instead of taking up infrastructure, Trump decided to take on health care, an issue I worked on. Um, so and his offering, the Republicans are offering not a bill that I think is – bad on policy or whatever, but I think is like a morally outrageous bill. I mean, so the fact that people send themselves to Congress to basically rip away health care from the most vulnerable people, I find uh, not like a interesting policy debate, but a moral affront. And so it very much focuses the mind on, and I, I've been very focused on ensuring the American people understand what's in this bill and what it would do to them. And I'm at least... I mean, there have been a a terrible number of things that the Trump administration has done. But at the very least, the public has recognized that this bill uh, is is bad 
And that's why we are living under the most outrageous process around this bill, which is essentially no one – Mitch McConnell does not want to make the bill public except for a week out. And the framework that's been made public is not going to be the final framework. Yeah. Where there might only be a matter of hours before the final vote. You alluded to running the Center for American mm-hmm. Progress where, where we sit, where there's a big banner behind me that <laughs> says cap all over it. During the W. Bush years, mm-hmm. Cap was referred to often as the Clinton White House in exile. I don't think it was the Clinton White House in exile. I think it was the White House in exile back then, but sure. <laughs> well, that that takes me to today. Is this now still the White House in exile for, for Democrats? Or do you feel like the locus of energy and momentum has shifted away from simply D.C. and there's been so much organizing around the country that there really yeah. can't be a White House in exile anymore? I don't – I don't – I think – I think waiting for a White House or being a White House in exile is just like we do not – no one has the luxury of that anymore. I mean today uh, we are seeing a frontal assault on a whole range of progressive issues. I mean healthcare is the tip of the spear but budget, tax, everything, what's happening on foreign policy. So for us, we are – you know, we're focused on stopping as much of the kind of legislative assault as we can and – I do think that the energy in the – that there's incredible energy in the country and what's really important is to bring that energy into the debate. So we spend a lot of time – we've spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks, months trying to uh, get people who are concerned uh, but like live in their communities to go to town halls or go call their members of Congress now. And I actually think one of the reasons why Mitch McConnell has kept the secret for so long is he's worried about direct democracy taking on this bill and because it will have huge consequences for people. And, you know, it's, people are always like, oh, people just don't like Trump or they're resisting. You know, the people who are flooding these town halls are people who are worried about losing their health care. They have friends and family of preexisting conditions. And they're all, you know, energized by what this bill will do to them. And so um, that's where I think the energy is. Now, it, there's a feedback loop. There's energy out in the country. But if you can get them to call their member of Congress. We just saw this great uh, busload of indivisible folks who'd organized from West Virginia. They brought a whole slew of people in. Shelley Moore Capito met with them, um, as did Senator Manchin. And they both kind of talked about what their commitments were on this bill, which hopefully would be actually realized in how they vote. Um, so uh, I see the activism out there, but as, as as where really the energy and future of progressive politics is. But I think we can play an important role in reminding people that it's not, 28, it's not just 2018 that you can defeat Trump, um, where, you know, it's important for people to vote, but there's really critical issues that will affect people uh, fundamentally that are, that the Congress is dealing with now. Bring it back to Cap. There are so many young folks who either listen to this podcast or read Politico and reach out and ask for advice. Really? And say, Is that true? It is true. <laughs> it is true. I, I think every week I'm hearing from at least one grad student who says, uh, I want. Oh, that's great. I want. <laughs> thank you. I'm coming on this podcast to get endorsements about this podcast from you. But the, the question is these... We'll just see how it ends. You haven't gotten an endorsement that's yet. That's true. I shouldn't. Uh, uh, I should... don't, don't like overplay your hand there, buddy. <laughs> I'm just a grubby reporter. I'm not a politician who knows when an endorsement is actually coming. It felt like one was on the horizon. But there are young folks who are asking, and I say young folks like I'm some old, old geezer, yeah. but 
there are grad students who are asking, how can I get involved? What mm-hmm. should I do? And I had this conversation with someone a week or two ago, uh, disproportionately liberal and, and progressives, who say, I want to fight the Trump agenda. Yeah. And I, I really have my dream job is working for Neera Tanden or mm-hmm. Andy Slavitt or whoever it might yeah. be. But you only yeah, have. Send him our way. Well, but <laughs> you can't hire everybody. And, no, we can't and hire you were just everybody. talking about the activists out in the community. So if. If there is a 25-year-old who's steeped in healthcare, yeah, is that person best served coming to a think tank, a policy shop like CAP, or going out in West Virginia, Ohio, someplace where there might be less of that activism and more need for on-the-ground expertise? So that's a great question. It's, it reminds me, we're, we're doing a lot of work with Andy Slavitt and uh, you know, he's doing these town halls and districts and they're like districts where uh, representatives aren't showing up, where where the Republicans aren't holding town halls at all. And he's getting, you know, hundreds of people to come out and talk. So I, I guess I'd say, look, my broad analogy is that, um, you know, the election uh, really uh, kind of wiped out a lot of the field on the progressive side. So we do need more and more people to engage in the debate, engage in the fight. You know, we can't hire everybody, but we are actually trying to think through how we can, you know, expand our expand our horizon, like set up advisory groups, et cetera, just so you can pull people into the debate. So but it is vital. Like if you if you're concerned about healthcare and you live in a swing state, you know, do what you can, you know, and contact us. We'll provide you tools about how you can engage and engage your members of Congress and your senators. This is really the crunch time. This week is really the crunch time. Today, tomorrow, the coming upcoming days, really vital for people to recognize what this bill will do and how it will hurt people. And it's critical that people's voices are heard. You know, as you know better than I do, at the beginning of this year, um, you know, the Republican plan was to have this bill passed and signed by Memorial Day. The only reason why that hasn't happened is because there has been so much public opposition, opposition in town halls, opposition in um, um, uh, in calls to Congress. And so people uh, showed up and sat in Rob Portman's office yesterday from Ohio because they said that he wasn't holding enough representation. Absolutely. There. And it's it's made people recognize that's a problem. I mean, if you think about where we were at the beginning of this debate where they wanted to pass a repeal and then. Uh, three years later, come up with their plan. That was stopped because people said that's crazy. Right? <laughs> like You're people- talking about repeal now, replace later. Yeah. I, I want to challenge this, though. Even with all of those town halls, mm-hmm. the clips that went viral, the representatives who were shouted down, it still got through the House. And we are now in a position where Democrats and, and activist groups can say what they want, but it's all on the Republicans and what they choose to do. Absolutely. This has been from the beginning. They've used a process of reconciliation in order to ensure that it is just a partisan vote to get rid of this bill, right? And people can say what they want about the ACA, but they use the normal process. There were markups, there were hearings. A lot of Republican amendments were taken. It was not, we're not, we didn't get a lot of Republican votes, but a lot of Republicans were amendments were taken. There was like taken. one Republican vote along the way, yes. if not for the final bill. So if, but Kat- I'd say this is a bit, this is the 800, this is the big question, which is the $800 billion the question. The $800 billion question or a couple trillion dollar question, which is, which is, the public opposes this bill, whether it's 30 percent support or 17 percent support. The vast majority of the country does not want this bill to pass. The Republicans 
can choose to pass it because partisanship is the most important thing to them. They can make that decision, but they will do it in against the interests of the majority of the country, which they are well aware of. The ACA, while we were debating the bill, it was always like a 45-50 issue. It was not 27 percent as we went. There was a poll by Quinnipiac two days before the Senate voted in 2009, 35 percent of Americans approved of the health care process then. That's basically on par with the Politico morning consult poll that came out yesterday about the Republican bill, which I think said 36 percent. Of the process, but the bill itself. Well, of the plan, of the plan. Um, I remember those numbers a little higher. But what I'm saying is, it's look, the Republicans have the ability to pass this bill. They only need 50 votes in the Senate. There are 52, there are 52 senators. And so, Pence is the tiebreaker. Uh, so, yes. So they just need 50 votes. Um, we need three votes to, to stop this bill. And that's really the question, whether uh, Republicans, it's absolutely not up to Democrats. We can't filibuster this bill or Democrats can't filibuster this bill. They don't have a lot of tools in the arsenal to deal with it. They, are, they will exhaust all that they can. But at the end of the day, it's going to be a decision by Republicans. And that's why all the swing voters are Republicans on this. And that's the activism we have in front of us. And you are bringing every tool to bear. Your staffers, tofers out on Twitter, <laughs> mobilizing people to call. If this bill passes, is that a failure for the progressive movement? Is it a failure for CAP? But it's so my my issue about this is it's not. First of all, anytime you're fighting for the right thing, I don't think it's a failure. The reason I mean, the reason why we're doing this is because we have to do everything we can to stop this bill because it'll drop coverage for millions of people. That's the calculus. I mean, there is a if you were thinking completely tactically, right? If we were all thinking tactically, Democrats would say pass the bill because it's hugely unpopular. We went through this and in it's you know, you when you have Republicans and swinged in in 20 point Republican districts not saying whether they support a bill or not, that tells you how toxic it is. And so the fact that it's that toxic means it'll be a big problem for them. I mean, I've I've I know there are Democratic strategists who are like, this is a win win, right? If they pass the bill, it's it's good if they don't pass. But that's not how we should think about this. What we should think and I'm proud of Democrats for trying everything they can to stop this bill because it is a moral outrage. Even if it helps us it helps Democrats in the future election, it's just not the reason why we should we should that's it should not be the reason we take action. Last question. You are passionate. You are well-spoken. You are thoughtful. You are a progressive leader. Will you ever run for office? Has this <laughs> moment... I mean, anyone can be president, Nira. That's what one thing we That's learned true. from the anyone past year. Anyone can be president. And, you know, I'm really excited And about, you're already the head of an organization. I'm, I'm really excited about uh, all these people running. I mean, there, if you look at the people running around the country... The gelato king in Minnesota... The, the iron, this iron stash at iron stash, or, you know, the iron worker out in uh, who's challenging Paul Ryan. I mean, he's probably uh, not going to win. But. Teacher, that's a great ad. I really recommend people look at this ad. They're teachers or business owners. There's uh, uh, advocates all stepping up to run, and I think it's really exciting. And I think my, I conceive of my job as to you know really be about focusing on. What Congress is doing, you know, also developing an agenda for the future for progressives who want to run or anyone who wants to run. We're, our ideas are open to everybody, conservatives and liberals. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm really excited for other people uh, to take up that leadership. And uh, I just could not make my trolls so happy as to run for office. <laughs> they might just their heads might explode. So uh, it would be good business for Twitter. It would be good yeah. business for Twitter. All, all those trolls that you continue <laughs> to engage. And I had all these questions. 
questions about why you still do it, but unfortunately, I'm we're going to have to. I'm going to do less and less of that in the future. I I've, definitely I've heard do that from you before, <laughs> and and yet there you are battling it out on the Twitter front lines. Mm-hmm. Neera Tandon, thank you for making time to talk about healthcare, your career, and Cap on such a busy day in D.C. Thank you so much. It was great to be with you. And thank you for all the important coverage you do of what this bill will actually do for people or do to them. That does sound like an endorsement. I'll take it. (laughs) That's it for Pulse Check today. Thank you so much to Neera Tandon and the team at CAP for making time. Thanks to Bridget Mulcahy for following me around D.C. on a very busy day. You can find Pulse Check at all of the usual podcast places, Please recommend us, review us, rate us, especially as healthcare stays in the news. And we'll be back with a new episode of Pulse Check very soon.